You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is science writer and journalist Matt Ridley. Um, He is the author of a number of books, including The Red Queen, The Origins of Virtue, Genome, Nature versus Nurture, Francis Crick, The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything, How Innovation Works, and most recently, um, he's the co-author with microbiologist Alina Chan of Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19 which was published in November of 2021. I've actually read and enjoyed several of uh, Matt's um, books in the past. Um, I I loved uh, The Red Queen, Genome, and Nature versus Nurture. All of those I read when they came out, which was a little, little while ago. Um, but he is a, a wonderful writer of um, popular science books. Um, so thank you so much for that, Matt. Not at all. Very nice to talk to you. Just, I'm going to correct you on one tiny thing. That book, that that book is called Nature via Nurture, not Nature versus oh. Nurture. It's a mistake oh. almost everybody makes. It turned <laughs> out to be a very, very bad title. If nobody spots that I changed the word versus to via deliberately to try and make the point that these two work together, not against each other. But um, oh, it's, yes. it's fascinating. It's fascinating how people don't see it. Yes, you know, if if it were more recently that I'd read the book, I would probably remember. I'm sure, exactly. Um, yeah, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, at the not, age not picking where... on you. <laughs> <laughs> I've reached the age where I sort of remember having enjoyed books, um, but I don't always remember the the details very precisely. Indeed, um, yeah, if I'm they the were same. a while back. Yeah, yeah, I'm much the same. And uh, I did also enjoy the Rational Optimist, though I think I didn't agree with all of the. Uh, arguments being made in that book, but um, but I met, it was a very worthwhile food for, food for thought as well. Well, it'd be a um, terrible shame if we agreed on everything, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, as long as you prefer Star Trek to Star Wars and dogs to cats, we're we're good. Um, uh, yes, I'm with you on both. Yes, good. Phew. Perfect. Otherwise, <laughs> this interview would have been cancelled immediately. Um, you know, because a girl has to have standards. Quite right. Um, so um, I also want to just add the disclaimer that I am, although I'm a bit better educated about science than most people who have a English literature background, nevertheless, this was very, very much beyond my area of expertise and I felt quite out of my depth. And one of the classic um, symptoms of being out of your depth in a new field is the kind of whiplash effect of autodidacticism, which I experienced. So I read your book 
I was at first skeptical about the um, lab leak hypothesis. Um, I read your book, and to be clear, in the book you don't you don't come down in favor of that hypothesis. You just say that it is um, a hypothesis that is worth being taken seriously. Um, and that has a real possibility of being true. You don't claim to have proven it either way. Um, but I, I read the book and was felt strongly convinced in favor of the likelihood of a lab leak origin for the virus. Um, and then I read um, several papers, especially the work by um, Michael Warraby, um, disputing the findings in the book and I immediately just like boomeranged in the other, ricocheted off in the other direction um, and thought, okay, no, I, I'm convinced that there was almost certainly a zoonotic origin for the virus. And this, this kind of, this is the classic thing that happens when you don't have a grounding in a field. Um, you read one convincing argument, you are persuaded, and then you read a, a, a different argument, the other side, and you are also persuaded by that. So that is the state of my um, knowledge, and I thought I would be clear about that to listeners. But I'm very happy to have you put your side of things in more detail. Well, just just to make one one point, uh, uh, I mean, Michael Warraby is very explicitly clear that he hasn't read our book. He's been very critical of it, um, really in quite personal terms as well. But he hasn't read it. And I find that extraordinary that anyone could could say that, you know, this book is wrong, but I haven't read it. Um, he seems to be basing that opinion on some very critical reviews of, of our book, which are very inaccurate. So uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, the, the reason this matters is because this topic does not belong to virologists. It belongs to all of us. You know, 15 million people or 5 million people, we don't know which, are dead as a result of a terrible virus that has wreaked havoc across the world and turned all our lives upside down. And this is a subject we should all be allowed to take part in the debate about how it started. And I find it very frustrating when academic professional virologists say, effectively, leave this to us. We know what we're talking about. You people shouldn't be involved. Now, I've written three books about genomics, as you know. I did I have a PhD in biology. Uh, you know, I'm not a, 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 a complete non-starter in this topic. And my co-author is a, a brilliant scientist working in viral vector engineering. So she did very much does understand this topic. But all the same, we are saying anybody and everybody should have a chance to understand the arguments for and against this virus having come naturally or having come from a mistake in a laboratory. And, um, very much, you know, we've been criticized for writing a popular book. You know, how dare we write a book um, for the general reader about this? Um, and I find that very uh, 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 extraordinary, really, because I think the whole world deserves to, to have a chance to understand the arguments uh, on both sides of this question. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. And to clarify the uh, the. Um, arguments that I was reading of Michael's um, didn't actually refer to your book at all. Okay, yeah, right. Um, yes, well, he, so, he, he, you said uh, he, he uh, contradicted our book, and and um, and indeed, indeed, and he has been critical of our book. But um, right, but you're absolutely right. He's he's written an important paper. I've read it very carefully, um, and I'll you know I'll come back to why I think. 
uh, although he's made some good points, he has certainly not um, settled the matter for good. But anyway, go on with your question. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think he d- he doesn't claim to have settled the matter either. Well, that's not quite true because he did use the word dispositive evidence, and the, and that what that means mm-hmm. is settled once and for all. So I think that was I think that was a, a deliberate attempt to shut down this debate, which I think is is not the right thing to be doing at this stage. One question, one place we might start actually is: um, Do you think it likely this? that this debate will and can ever be settled. Yeah, yes. Um, I do. Um, Alina and I both think there's a good chance that we will eventually know how this began. Um, There are people uh, in China, in Wuhan in particular, who either know that there was better evidence for something happening in a market or that there was better evidence for something happening in a laboratory. Um, and they are not free to speak their minds at the moment. No, no Chinese scientist is is free to uh, give an interview to uh, the media um, uh, at all, um, or to publish anything without it being approved first by the authorities. Now, while that situation holds, it will be possible for us to uh, not find out what happened. But I think there is a chance in the coming years that either the regime will become less authoritarian, or Chinese scientists will um, get a chance to travel to the West, and some of them may uh, decide that when there they can uh, give more information that could be useful. And there's also information we know in Western hands within the National Institutes of Health and the uh, EcoHealth Alliance and other organizations that were collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that might might prove to be useful. So there's there's a very interesting case of a, uh, a, a, a an accident in 1979 when about um, 65 people died of anthrax in the city of Sverdlovsk in the Soviet Union. And uh, the Soviet government said nothing to do with the um, uh, pharmaceutical plant next door. Uh, and the West said, are you sure? Because we think that's a biowarfare plant. No, it's not. Don't be so um, offensive. Um, eventually, a, a, a group of international scientists was invited in, and they gave that theory a clean bill of health. They said, no, the Russians are right. This was food poisoning. It had nothing to do with the plant next door. And those included a Nobel Prize winner from America. It wasn't until about seven years later when the Soviet regime collapsed that a Soviet scientist came forward and said, I was running that lab. It was a biowarfare plant. We were working on anthrax. We did leave a, a, an exhaust filter off that day. We caused a leak. We killed 65 people. And it's a terrible uh, thing that we did. So, you know, it can take a long time, but information can eventually come out about these sort of incidents. Right. I, it's one of the reasons why I think I don't think of this as a conspiracy theory. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but a conspiracy, conspiracies, of course, can, can happen. Um, conspiracy theorists, conspiracy, the fact that conspiracy theorists also, theories also exist doesn't mean that there aren't real conspiracies. But in this mm-hmm. particular case, um, it, only a few people could have known about the leak. Um, so it's very possible that that knowledge was not, there's not a widespread cover-up among people working at the lab, but 
who just one or two people could have known about the leak. And it's very, it seems to have been certainly, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, but um, throughout my impression is that it's very difficult to get reliable information from the Chinese authorities. And even Warby and other critics of the lab leak thesis have acknowledged that there's um, a severe lack of transparency um, coming from um, the Chinese authorities. And therefore, I am, I am concerned that um, for people's arguments, they are relying on data that has been provided by the Chinese government and by Chinese scientific authorities, and that may be unreliable. Yes, and, and Michael Warraby himself has been explicit in saying that the Chinese haven't been fully forthcoming about what they found in the market, um, where he thinks it originated in, in the sale of, of food in the market. And that, in a sense, is also a conspiracy theory, you know, that, that somebody is covering up information about what happened in the market, because they aren't particularly happy about the idea that it gets blamed on traditional Chinese medicine or the propensity of some Chinese consumers to eat uh, exotic wildlife um, as food. Um, so, uh, the, you know, there the, the has to be a degree of lack of transparency, whatever happened here. Um, I don't think of it as a conspiracy uh, or a conspiracy theory. That is to say, uh, an accident that happened in a laboratory is by definition a cock-up, not a conspiracy. You know, it can't be that the original incident was was a conspiracy. Nobody here, least of all us, is, is um, alleging that there was a deliberate release of a virus in a city of 11 million people uh, when the world didn't have a vaccine to it. You know, th- that makes no sense, not even in um, uh, biological warfare terms. Um, so uh, there the may have been an accident. It may not have been noticed at the time. That happens quite often. There were at least six leaks of SARS, the original SARS virus, that infected laboratory workers after the SARS epidemic was over, but while it was still being studied in laboratories, one in Singapore, one in Taiwan, and four in Beijing. These uh, luckily didn't lead to epidemics, but they did result in several people being uh, infected and in one case, somebody dying. And on five of those six occasions, we don't know how it happened to this day. That is to say, somebody was working on SARS in a lab, they got infected, they hadn't punctured a glove or dropped a test tube or anything like that. Something had gone wrong in the protocols that even though they were working at high security, uh, biosecurity in these labs, they did get infected. So it's possible that the same thing happened on this occasion. Somebody got infected. They thought they had a cold. Nothing had gone wrong in the lab. There's no lab notebook with a logbook with a with an incident in it, you know, etc. But somehow, because they were working on this highly infectious virus, because if this virus was in a lab, it's very infectious. It would be very easy to catch it uh, if you weren't doing the, the the safety protocols right. And they were experimenting on very similar viruses at biosecurity level two, which is not a very high level of security. So, yes, it's easily possible that something happened. Where I do allege a conspiracy, if you like, um, is that there has been a a shocking lack of transparency from the Chinese authorities from the very start. First of all, they were alleging that it was only caught from animals until the 20th of January. Secondly, they were punishing 
uh, and reprimanding anybody in hospitals who talked about it at a time when it could have been nipped in the bud if if hospital workers had been more aware of what was happening. And thirdly, when they published the genome of the virus, they also published the genome of a very closely related virus, but they did not give the details about where that had been found, under what conditions, or that they had sequenced it two years before in this very laboratory, and so on and so on. So there's a whole, and, and most importantly, and we can come on to this if you like, they have a database in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which by the way is the leading institute for studying SARS-like coronaviruses in the world. They have a database in that institute, which went offline on the 12th of September 2019, has never come back online, and which contains information about the viruses they were working on after 2016, which mostly they have not published. Now, if you want to exonerate that lab, the first thing you should do is publish that database. And say, look, these are the viruses we're working on. None of them is closely related to SARS-CoV-2. So what are you on about? That would shut people like me up in a flash. But they will not publish that database. It has 22,000 entries. 15,000 of them came from bats. Uh, they changed the wording on the cover document, the title page, at the end of December. But the database itself remained inaccessible and remains so to this day. When asked why they won't publish it, they say, um, because uh, people keep trying to hack it. Well, that makes no sense at all. I mean, the point of uh, the database is was to predict and prevent the next pandemic by sharing the information in it. If you share it, you don't need to worry about people hacking it. Um, uh, and do we really think people were trying to hack it before the pandemic began? That doesn't make sense either. So uh, it, 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 there is a huge reluctance to come forward with the sort of information about what was going on in that laboratory that would be absolutely routine if it happened in a Western country, the sharing of that information. And there is a reluctance among Western virologists to criticize China for that failure to share. And that, I think, is a pity. Mm. That does seem, uh, so independently of whether the 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 origins of the virus, I find it very, um, I find it worrying, the lack of transparency um, and the, uh, in some cases, actual obstructiveness of Chinese authorities it seems to me very worrying in the case of the gain-of-function labs. Could you, could you run us through a sort of likely scenario for um, how... Um, Run us through one of the like one of the possible scenarios for how um, COVID nineteen might have uh, been introduced into the human population. Yes, um, uh, very easily. Um, uh, the first thing to say is what we do know for sure. We know this is a bat virus. We know it's a horseshoe bat virus. These viruses are found naturally uh, in a natural reservoir inside a genus of bats called the horseshoe bats, which live only in the old world. They don't live in the Americas. And they are particularly diverse in southern China. And we know that because of the work of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which tracked down SARS via animals in markets. Um, people were catching it in 2003. But they had somehow caught it from bats. And they eventually worked out that in Yunnan, in southwest China, there were bats carrying very, very similar viruses living in, in a particular cave called the Shitu Cave. And these viruses were um, sampled on a 
huge scale and brought back to Wuhan for, for study. Not because Wuhan is where this virus lives, but because that's where the virologists live and work. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how this virus, which is similar to SARS but not the same, traveled from southwest China, Yunnan, or Laos, which are the, where the two closest relatives to it have been found so far, to Wuhan, which is a journey of uh, nearly 2,000 kilometers by road. Um, there are four possible ways it could have happened. Uh, a wild animal could have brought it, a wild animal destined for the food trade in a market in Wuhan. Um, this is roughly what seems to have happened in the case of SARS. Uh, people farm wild animals, so that's a slight contradiction in terms, but uh, in China there are uh, wildlife farms for rearing animals like civet, civets and um, hog badgers and raccoon dogs and so on for the table uh, or for fur. Uh, and these are marketed in markets to people, mostly in southern China, very little actually in Wuhan, but some of them did find their way there. So it's possible that that happened, that an animal picked up the virus from a bat a long way away, the animal was brought to Wuhan, sold in a market, and somebody got infected. But the problem with that theory is that why wouldn't it turn up in any other markets? Why wouldn't anyone in the, along the route be infected? Why wouldn't the, the farm be infected? And so on. And none of that has been found. So there's a real absence of evidence to support that. We can come back to uh, the evidence that does point to the market being a significant place, but that's uh, a slightly different point. So the other possibility is that it wasn't wildlife that brought it from uh, Yunnan to Wuhan, but a human being. Now, that could have been a, a villager who farms in the area who got infected after he went to collect bat guano in a cave and then um, traveled to see a relative in Wuhan and so on. But again, we've come up with no evidence for that, and there doesn't seem to be very much of that. What we do know is that there was one kind of animal, one kind of human being that was traveling from bat caves in Yunnan to Wuhan on a regular basis, and that was the scientists. Scientists were collecting viruses from bats um, several times a year uh, in southwest uh, China, in Yunnan in particular, but also in Laos and neighboring countries and traveling with samples taken from bats, and in some cases with bats themselves, to Wuhan. Not to other cities so much, but to Wuhan. And there they were taking the samples into the laboratory and studying them. So what's po what possibly happened, and uh, Alina Chan and I are always reluctant to speculate about this. We try and stick to what we do know happened. But what possibly happened is that samples of viruses from bats were taken to Wuhan. Those viruses were then sequenced, grown in the laboratory in some cases. And in other cases, because we know this happened, in order to test the virulence of a newly discovered virus from a bat in Yunnan, what they would do is uh, – print out, as it were, part of the sequence of the spike gene and insert it into a virus that they could grow in the lab. There were two in particular called WIV1 and WIV16 that they had managed to culture and grow in uh, human tissue cells in the lab. But if you, if you substitute this part of the spike gene from a newly discovered virus that you can't grow in the lab, then you can test how dangerous that spike gene is in cells. 
They did these experiments. They reported on them in 2018 in a document that was never made public, but we, we have now seen. And these experiments showed that the that some of these spike genes resulted in increased infectivity of up to 10,000 times and increased lethality to humanized mice, that is to say mice with human genes, of three or four times. So these were experiments which were showing that uh, some of the viruses they were finding in these caves had dangerous spike genes in them. And these were experiments that were infecting human cells and infecting humanized mice in the lab. Now, if one of those viruses had um, uh, infected a lab worker um, with a respiratory illness, which it could easily have done, because remember, these are human cells that the experiments are being done on, um, then that lab worker might not have reported um, a, a significant illness, um, but might have infected other people uh, in going about their everyday work. That's the sort of possibility that we have to consider as a result of knowing what they were doing with viruses in that lab and what experiments they were doing to enhance the infectivity of those viruses. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to some of the uh, objections that I have heard to um, to this idea. Um, the first one, I'll try and put this in my own words to check whether I've understood it. There are there are millions of human-animal interactions every day in Wuhan and uh, many hundreds of interactions every day at the market. Viruses are also constantly mutating and therefore a virus in an intermediate host, a musk or a civet, civet or raccoon dog being sold at the market could also have mutated into a form, just naturally mutated into a form able to infect humans and then been passed through the animal, either directly to the customer or through the animal handler to the customer. Um, and that is the way the pandemic could have, could have got started. Indeed. And that is exactly how SARS started. Um, in the case of SARS in 2002-03, um, people started uh, dying of this uh, pretty unpleasant uh, respiratory disease. Uh, the investigations quickly revealed that the people who were catching it first, the index cases in most cases, were food handlers. There was then an investigation as to what kind of food they were handling, and it was found that people who uh, were trading wildlife in markets had a lot of antibodies to this virus. And it was then found that some of the animals they were handling had the virus. And it was a 99% the same virus. So it's, you know, it's, it, there's no question this was the source. In particular, palm civets were, were fingered. Only later, but within a few months, it became clear that the palm civets were catching it from bats because they sampled wildlife and they discovered that, that SARS-like viruses exist in horseshoe bats. So the whole thing was sorted out very quickly. And when there was a later SARS outbreak in 2004, it was sorted out even more quickly. The, the, the restaurant where it started denied that they were selling palm civets and investigations showed that, that that was not true. They were, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's exactly the pattern that everybody expected to find here. 
that we would find infected people in the market, um, that they had infected wildlife and in their stalls in the market, uh, and that they were carrying antibodies showing that such people had been infected before. None of that has come to light. Two years on, despite much superior technology to what we had in 2002-03, we have not found an infected animal from the market. Not at all. Not one. Not one animal other than a human being has been found to, to carry this virus, um, except ones obviously who've caught it from humans later on in the pandemic. That's very odd. It's very surprising. It's not what was expected. It's not what the Chinese authorities told us to expect in the first week, uh, first weeks. Nor is there a particular pattern of food handlers being more infected than other people in that market. There is an individual shrimp seller who um, was uh, uh, appears to be one of the very earliest cases, but there's an even earlier case who's an accountant who visited the market. There are samples of this virus from that market, but they are all from so-called environmental samples, that that is to say from countertops, from sewage, from door handles, things like that. Uh, They're not from – there's one from an animal cage, but um, there was no animal infected in it. So until we find good hard evidence that an infected animal was traded in that market – we can't say that that's how this started. Um, the, the samples, the environmental samples in the market are basically the human virus. I mean, not basically, they are the human virus. They're not 99% close relatives like they were in the case of SARS. You know, they're not an animal version that has changed a bit to infect humans. Now, this is a um, this is a virus that was well adapted to infecting human beings from the very start. It didn't show the same kind of rapid evolution to fit a new host that SARS did. Um, uh, it was very good at, 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 at exploiting human bodies, um, but it's quite good at exploiting lots of other bodies too. So there's no great mystery about people picking it up wherever they got it from, whether that was a lab or a market. Um uh, it's a virus that would have found it quite easy to get into the human species. So we don't know where and how it became so good at infecting human beings, but we do know it's quite Catholic. It's quite prepared to infect lots of species. You know, mink have got it since, and cats and so on. Um, uh, so wherever it was, market or lab, it would have been easy to pick it up. Um, I gather, so one of the things that I, this doesn't exactly contradict what you're saying, um, but one of the things that I um, read uh, is that viruses that have been isolated from pangolins and also some viruses that have have been isolated from bats in Laos um, that we've, that have been discovered since the, the beginning of the pandemic, um, actually infect, bind to human receptor cells more efficiently than SARS-CoV-2 does. Um, Because I think, uh, so this evidence was offered um, in refutation of the idea that you you moot within the book, which is that um, SARS-CoV-2's capacity uh, to efficiently affect infect human receptor cells um, 
suggests that it had probably may have undergone gain of function research in the lab before entering the human population and then been accidentally accidentally escaped from the lab. Um, at no point do you claim that it was deliberately engineered as a bioweapon, just to be absolutely clear about that to anyone listening. Um, and uh, what I have been reading is that there are other naturally occurring uh, Sarbico viruses, so SARS-like um, viruses, in animals which are which are already um, better at binding to human receptor cells than the original SARS-CoV-2, and therefore it's not necessary to hypothesize a gain gain of function um, research having been carried out to explain the ease with which. Um, the virus binds to human cells. Could you uh, say something about that? Yeah, delighted. L- let me just, first of all, tell the pangolin story, because it's quite an interesting story. Um, pangolins are scaly anteaters. They're very solitary animals. They're not the kind of animals that carry uh, respiratory viruses because they, you know, they don't live in large colonies like bats or humans do. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise when there was a press conference in early February uh, 2020, uh, at which it was announced by a university in, in Guangzhou in southern China that they had found basically SARS-CoV-2's first cousin in um, pangolins. Um, and uh, this turned out to be a batch of about 100 smuggled pangolins. Pangolins are, are used in traditional Chinese medicine. Their scales are ground down and used as medication. Uh, this is bunk, by the way, because they're made of the same material as fingernails, so it can't do you any possible good. But uh, it results in pangolins being among the most threatened wildlife in the world. They're smuggled from Africa, from South, from Southeast Asia into China in very large numbers. Um, uh, a bunch had been smuggled uh, into Guangzhou and had been intercepted by the um, authorities. Most of them died. About 20 were still alive. They were very sick when they were um, found, uh, and most of them continued to die. Um, three of them turned out to have coronaviruses in their lungs. Uh, th- these weren't necessarily what was killing them. There were other viruses that all of them had that were, uh, including a virus called Sendai virus, which is particularly lethal. Th- these poor animals, things. poor things, I know. It's a terrible, terrible story. Um, uh, and this was in March 2018, 2019, that that they were uh, intercepted. Um, <clears throat> when the, this information was published in the autumn of 2019, when the pandemic broke out, some scientists went back and looked at those coronaviruses found in three of the, the pangolins, two originally and later in a third one, um, <clears throat> and they uh, found that it was a close relative of SARS-CoV-2, the cause of this pandemic. Not as close as the one they already knew they had from bats from Yunnan, but still pretty close. Sorry, at the press conference, they said it was 99% the same. Now, that was exactly what we were looking for. An intermediate animal with a 99% virus, just as we found in SARS, that could be the cause of the pandemic. But uh, two weeks later, the four scientific papers appeared from these groups who'd been studying these pangolins, giving the information. It was not 99% the same. It was about 
5% the same. No, sorry. Some of it was overall, it was about 90 to 92% the same. So this was nothing like close enough to have been the cause of the pandemic. Um, what's more, uh, it's receptive. May I ask, um, how similar was the spike protein, the area encoding for the spike protein? Um, uh, I can, or the most important part of the spike yeah, protein? The receptor binding domain was pretty similar. It was about 97% in this. But it lacked one feature that SARS-CoV-2 has, which is called a furin cleavage site, which is an insertion of 12 base pairs into that spike protein, which is the reason we're having a pandemic. Um, that is to say, the, the, the furin cleavage site makes this virus much, much more infectious. And if it didn't have it, as SARS doesn't have it, and indeed all other SARS-like viruses don't have it, then we wouldn't be having a pandemic. We'd be able to stop this epidemic very quickly. So the pangolin virus doesn't have that, nor does the bat virus that's even more closely related overall, the one from Yunnan called RATG13, and nor does the more recently discovered virus from Laos that is about the same, very slightly more closely related than the one from Yunnan, but which was collected um, in Laos and we know that Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists were bringing uh, viruses from Laos, by the way, so that doesn't necessarily rule out that connection. So the search for a close cousin of SARS-CoV-2 that also has a furin cleavage site in it goes on and is a, a, so far has come up blank. And until we find that, we cannot say that we have found the progenitor of this virus. We don't know how it got that feature. Um, when, it, when it was first noticed, uh, scientists in the US published a paper in which they said, no big deal here. We're bound to find a virus in the wild that has a furin cleavage site in it, a SARS-like virus. We find furin cleavage sites in other coronaviruses, just not in SARS-like viruses so far. We'll find one, don't worry. Well, uh, here we are two years later, still none. They've found many other SARS-like viruses, many other SARS-CoV-2-like viruses, and none of them have this furin cleavage site. It's a 12-base pair insertion. That's a big chunk of RNA to suddenly appear within a genome uh, from nowhere. It's not, it can't be achieved by what's called point mutation, where you change the letters one at a time. Um, it's been inserted somehow. Now, that could have happened naturally through recombination, but in this context, it is highly relevant that a document emerged in August of 2021, which described how a, a team of scientists um, led by the EcoHealth Alliance, but including the Wuhan Institute of Virology as collaborators, planned to put a furin cleavage site into a SARS-like coronavirus for the first time. Now, the grant proposal didn't get funded by the US government, but uh, this at least was a crucial bit of information that these scientists were planning to do this. They had already put furin cleavage sites into a MERS-like virus uh, and into a porcine, a, a pig coronavirus. And the reason they were doing this was because if you put a furin cleavage site into a virus, you make it easier to grow it in the lab. 
you make it much more likely that you can actually isolate and grow and culture this virus. So it's a tool for, for helping work in the lab. And these experiments with furin cleavage sites go back to about 2006. And initially, they were mostly done just with single with proteins rather than with whole viruses. But in recent years, um, once in Wuhan, once in uh, the Netherlands, uh, once in the United States, experiments were done to put uh, furin cleavage sites into um, uh, live viruses. Now, until 2018, we knew of no such experiment that planned to do this in a SARS-like coronavirus. Um, uh, and as far as we can make out, this proposal was that it would be done in North Carolina, not in Wuhan. But the Wuhan Institute of Virology was a collaborator in this project. It was hugely expanding the work it was doing on viruses. And as I say, it was making chimeras of newly discovered SARS-like viruses with existing ones. So uh, it's not impossible that they decided to go ahead with that experiment anyway. We can't rule it out, but we can't rule it in at the moment. Um, and so that's why it's important to understand just how unique the, the uh, key part of the spike gene is. It's slightly separate from the receptor binding domain, the place where you find this furin cleavage site, but it's absolutely critical. Um, so yes, there was a similar virus that infected pangolins somehow, um, yes, there is a similar virus in horseshoe bats in Yunnan where they collected it and brought it to Wuhan, and that's where they found it in their own freezer, and they sequenced it in 2018. And yes, there was a similar virus collected in Laos after the pandemic began. Somewhere between these three sites, a long way to the south of Wuhan, lies the answer of where somebody either found a uh, virus with a furin cleavage site in, and that person was either a scientist or a wildlife smuggler, um, and somehow brought it to Wuhan, or a furin cleavage site was inserted into a virus in Wuhan. Now, we can't, we haven't been given the information that would allow us to rule out that possibility. Could you explain a little bit more about how a furin cleavage site actually works and <laughs> yes. how it makes the virus more infectious. If that's something that you're able to do um, for lay people, I, I imagine. I know that it's very technical. Um, yes, th this is where it does get technical. Um, and I would argue that we're right at the edge of what uh, molecular biologists understand here and that although they have made incredible and remarkable discoveries in this area and i just pinch myself with excitement at the, the fact that i can live in a world where we know this kind of detail there are still uncertainties about this and we can't be absolutely sure how this is working but what we know is that furin is a human enzyme it's a perfectly ordinary molecule floating around in most many of the cells of your body um, where it, it has a particular job to do, and that is to make a little cut in a protein, to snip, a, uh, snip the, the chain of a protein, uh, of, of various proteins, which helps them reshape themselves. It doesn't actually split them into two. It just enables them to change shape, um, uh, and that um, uh, makes them functional, makes them ready to do their job. 
Why this is thought to be necessary is not entirely clear, but you can imagine, you know, that the cell produces a protein. Uh, it doesn't want it doing its job here. It wants it to go out and do it outside the cell. So on the way out of the cell, it gets uh, reconfigured slightly. And part of that involves a little snip by furin or one of the other um, so-called proteases that, that does this. Now, viruses have done something very clever. They have decided to make use of furin and other proteases to reshape some of their proteins to make them, uh, to prime them to be ready to latch on to other cells. And they do this on the whole as they leave the cell. So again, you can see the point is, you know, you don't want the, the gun to be loaded while it's still inside the house. You want to load the gun as you go out of the house. So you have the furin change the shape of the protein on the way out. That seems to be a big part of what's happening. And um, many viruses have found a way of inserting into their uh, spike genes or the equivalent of their spike genes a sequence that attracts furin and gets it to do this snipping. It's really that simple. Now, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the spike on the outside of the virus, the famous bit sticking out, um, uh, is uh, consists of three spike proteins tied together. It's a sort of um, a threefold structure. Um, and it, the, it, when the furin snips a part of those three spike proteins, they they open out, they become a different shape, and they are then capable of latching on to the uh, ACE2 receptor on the surface of another cell much more efficiently. So um, uh, what's going on here is the, um, the, 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 the processing of a protein on the surface of a virus by a human enzyme. And in order to attract the human enzyme, you have to have a sequence called, that is so-called polybasic that has three or two or three arginine uh, uh, residues in place at the, at the same time. And in this case, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the furin cleavage site reads R-R-A-R, arginine, arginine, alanine, arginine. Um, that's, that's the key sequence that you need in there to, to make it do this job. I probably haven't explained it terribly clearly. It's tremendously technical, but it gives you some kind of feel for what's going on. Um, actually, that was an extremely clear explanation, and I think it will show listeners why I enjoyed your earlier book so much. Um, well, I do, your... I, I do feel that science writers have a duty. I mean, you, you as a writer will appreciate this, not to leave out the details. You know, th there's a tendency in science writing to say, you know, scientists have developed a cure for cancer. It's too difficult to explain how it works, but it will result in a lot of people saving their lives. Well, I don't think that's very interesting. I think you need to find a way, necessary using metaphors, analogies, um, uh, to, to, to tell in a simplified form the absolutely critical details of how things work in, in science writing. It's never easy, and you sometimes get to the – you know, if you take more than a paragraph over it, you've probably lost the reader. <laughs> but um, uh, I've always believed that it's important not to leave it out. Absolutely. Um, I actually have done an interview about um, 
uh, cancer treatments um, with um, Azra Raza, if anyone is specifically interested in that. And she also goes into a lot of detail um, of all kinds about that. Um, I, um, I think I remember protease inhibitors being used uh, in the treatment of HIV. Absolutely. Um, and it's for a very similar reason. That is to mm-hmm. say, um, uh, the HIV it doesn't have a spike. I can't remember what its, its surface protein is called, but it similarly gets reshaped by a protease, not furin in this case. Um, and if you, if you, uh, sort of stop proteases working, then you hurt the human being, but you hurt the virus even more. And that's how those drugs work. Um, uh, and, and so, yes, protease inhibition is right. You know, it's the same, same point. I don't know if they're still using that. I mean, my information on treatments is out of date and I know now they've advanced tremendously, but. They definitely did it once. I think it is the basis of most of the very, very important and life-saving HIV drugs that are out there Mm -hmm. is that they are forms of protease inhibitors. And and they've got to the point where they they don't hurt the patient so much, but they do hurt the virus very efficiently. Um, So I want to um, go back to some of the objections um, to the... Uh, to the idea of a lab leak hypothesis, um, the first one, which is is more uh, generalized and simple, is that the lab leak um, zoonotic a zoonotic origin is the null hypothesis, and therefore we should assume a zoonotic origin unless proven otherwise. Um, and the burden of proof and the burden of evidence is on people who are suggesting that may not have a zoonotic evidence. And people are, part of the claim for that is that there have been many, many pandemics caused by zoonotic events, um, but no no known pan- previous pandemics or epidemics caused by um, lab leak, at least not lab leak of novel viruses. I know there have been outbreaks of, uh, kind of fresh outbreaks of viruses um, caused by lab leaks. Uh, so we talked you talked about the um, anthrax um, epidemic the anthrax outbreak, for example. And I know there have also been more serious outbreaks that were based on lab leaks, but uh, not pandemics of novel viruses. So what would you say to that objection, that first objection? Yeah, th- this is a um uh, the, the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, coined a rather um, neat phrase. He called it burden tennis. You, oh, yes. You, um. <laughs> you, you whack the burden of proof back over the philosophical net to your opponent and say, it's it's up to you to prove your point. My my thesis stands as long as you don't prove your point. And we do this all the time in arguments, you know, that, 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 that my null hypothesis deserves the benefit of the doubt, um, and yours doesn't. That's essentially what we're saying, is it's all about the benefit of the doubt. I don't accept that for several reasons. Firstly, because uh, this is a new era. 20 years ago, there was no research program on SARS-like coronaviruses in Wuhan. Um, there were few virology labs doing this kind of work. There was no gain-of-function work. Nobody had put a furin cleavage site into a 
uh, into a virus before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, of course, there were no pandemics caused by those kind of experiments before, because those experiments weren't being done before, um, uh, and therefore that changes uh, w- what our null hypothesis should be. Uh, the the proper Bayesian approach to this is that you don't have a null hypothesis. You don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. You say both of these hypotheses need to be assessed equally uh, and given uh, as much chance as they can to prove or disprove uh, their claims. We know that viruses leak in labs all the time. I mentioned SARS, uh, but there's plenty of other examples. And let me give you just a sort of neat little British case history here and wonder where your burden of proof argument would end up with that. In uh, 2007, there was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in cattle in Purbright in Surrey. Now, Purbright happens to be where the world's leading reference laboratory for studying foot and mouth disease is housed. Right, um, uh, it was it was thirteen miles between the lab and the um, farm. The burden of proof argument you've just illustrated would say, "Ah, but foot and mouth disease has never been shown to start in a lab." So the fact that this farm is very close to the world's leading foot and mouth lab is of no relevance. This is bound to be natural. Did we say that? No. We said, hang on a minute, this is suspiciously close to the lab. Have you had any problems in the lab? Oh, yes, we had a leaking pipe. Um, How did you mend it? We got contractor Fred Bloggs to do it. What did Fred Bloggs do the next day? He went to that farm. The problem was solved very quickly. It turned out that exactly that had happened. There was a leaking pipe. The contractor who mended it had infected his vehicles, he'd traveled to another farm, he'd given the virus to to the cattle there. So we didn't say we've never had a lab-based foot and mouth outbreak before, therefore this can't be one. And that would have been a ridiculous argument. Now, we've just had an outbreak of a SARS-like coronavirus in an area where SARS-like coronaviruses are not found in bats, but right next to the leading SARS-like coronavirus research lab in the world, and you're telling me, you're not telling me, but you know, um, I'm being told that the burden of proof must be on me to prove it's the lab and not on the other explanations to prove that in this case, they are the explanation. We've had, you know, we haven't had a global pandemic that killed this many people uh, for 120 years, roughly. Uh, sorry, 100, 100 years, I should say, 1918. And before that, the worst one was 1880. Um, uh, we've had outbreaks, small epidemics. We've had, you know, Ebola and Zika and all these kind of things. But we've not seen something this big for 100 years. So to say these things happen all the time naturally just isn't true. It's something unusual must have happened because people have been harvesting bat guano, they've been smuggling animals, they've been selling them in markets uh, all over China and Southeast Asia for many decades. They're doing it rather less now than they used to. You know, many rural Chinese people have moved to cities. Uh, The amount of um, 
wild caught wildlife as opposed to farm wildlife that is being sold is not particularly high at the moment, uh, and so on. So um, I don't think the burden of proof argument, the uh, benefit of the doubt argument, um, deserves much time in this case. Uh, I'm going to raise two further questions that are raised by um, Michael Warraby and a a few other people I know have uh, have raised them to a previous guest of mine, um, David Grimes, uh, who I talked to about a completely different topic, but he has raised this as well, um, which is the pattern of early infections. Um, So... One of the claims you make in the book, which quite surprised me, is that um, in the early part of the pandemic, that um, when they were gathering data, the Chinese authorities um, did not gather data on everybody who had uh, respiratory illness during that time, but on uh, but only on cases specifically linked to the market, creating a kind of circular. Um, correct me if I'm if I if I'm yeah, misunderstood. No, misrepresented. Yeah, yeah. Creating a kind of circular set of evidence, um, and I'm so uh, I think Warabi is is questioning that, and he says that if you look at known cases, um, all those cases show the market as the epicenter, and all known cases of people with SARS-CoV-2 in November and December of 2019, um, who had not been to the market, lived close enough to the market that they could have contracted the virus from someone who had been to the market. And that it's not um, it's not a, the kind of epicenter of Wuhan. It's not that this is a particularly um, densely foot-trafficked area, uh, the market itself. So... Um, it's not simply a coincidence. It's not simply that you place the market in, you know, Times Square or Piccadilly Circus or something. And therefore, you would expect there to be a lot of people passing through there anyway. So, um, what would you say to that, um, to his, to that objection? Yeah. Well, there's, there's two points there. One is that, uh, you know, why the market? Why not, um, the theater or the railway station or something like that? Um, and I think he has a reasonable point there. It does look like the market acted as a super spreader amplifier in a way that other places in um, central Wuhan did not. And that's obviously suspicious, given that we know these things can start with the sale of wildlife. There's also the point that um, the, the Chinese authorities initially said they had tested wildlife they found at the market. They then later told the World Health Organization that they'd not found any wildlife in the market. And a paper was then published um, which had been studying the market in previous years and had found there was wildlife for sale in the market. So there's also the possibility that they'd missed wildlife there. So, yeah, I think it's it's or, quite – Or light, presumably. Or light, exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. No, that that, that is – the trouble. Um, we don't really know uh, how honest everybody's being here. But the more important question is the so-called ascertainment bias. So was the definition of COVID in the first couple of weeks of January, before we had good testing, etc., that you've been to that market? 
or you live near it? And the answer is yes. We know that for sure. If you look at the diagnostic criteria used in those very early days that you know that doctors were told to, to use, does this person have um, uh, uh, you know a persistent cough, um, symptoms of pneumonia? Do they have ground glass opacities in their lungs on on X-rays? Yes, yes, yes. Have they also been to or do they live near the Wu, the Huanan seafood market? Yes, that was what you had to say. If, if the answer was no to that, you were supposed to say, well, it, then it probably isn't this new thing. Uh, so there was almost certainly an underreporting of cases who were not particularly close to the market. But not for, not for certain. It might be that, 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 that ascertainment bias did not have a, a big effect and that actually most of the cases were close to the market. Now, um, Michael Warby says it's not a particularly active spot. That's just not true. It's, it, or rather, you said that that's what he said. I'm not, I, I don't know whether he did say that, but. I, I may have misunderstood him, but yeah. that's what I understood him to have said. It, I it, should say that as a, as a disclaimer to everything yes, that indeed. I'm arguing. Of course, here. understood. But, um, but, but yeah, but it has been said by some that, look, it's just a market. You know, there's not that many people there. Well, it's a huge market. It's gigantic. It has, th- it has hundreds of 600 and something stalls. Um, uh, it has an enormous foot po- footfall every day. Uh, it's undercover. Uh, it's relatively cool in there because it's mostly a seafood market. It's mostly selling, uh, as the name implies, uh, seafood. Um, so it's there's high humidity. There's there's uh, relatively cool temperatures. Ideal conditions really for spreading a virus, which might not be true of a better ventilated. Um, uh, railway station uh, or uh, theater or something like that um and uh let's not forget so the, but we do not doubt nobody doubts that there was an outbreak connected with the market you know that that there were people who infected each other in the market we found the virus in there quite a lot of the early cases had been there some stallholders were infected etc cetera, etc cetera. so the, the 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 chinese centers for disease control head george gao has always said well has said since may of 2020 this was not where it started and he reiterated that in a preprint just very recently but it is where it was amplified it was a super spreader event, like the Cheltenham Race Festival was in the UK or other such, uh, 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 you know, ski resorts and so on. So he says that the market did amplify the virus. There's no question of that. What if the um, first person to take it to the to the market was an employee of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, for example? Um, uh, we know, for example, the World Health Organization made quite a big deal about the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is quite a long way from the market. Uh, it's about 13 miles. But that's its new campus. It had only just moved most of its operations from its old campus where its experiments were done, which is more like three or four miles from it. And less than 300 yards from the market is the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control and Pre- Prevention, which was where Tian Junhua worked, who was a close collaborator with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, also sampling viruses in bats, who had sampled over 10,000 bats, mostly in Hubei province, i.e. local, but had been working with 
um, the other scientists in uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and indeed at Wuhan University. Um, so um, we've got a complex pattern here of cases mostly clustered in the center of the city, where the market is, but also where some labs are, just across the river from uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which um, does particularly work on these sorts of viruses. I don't think that geographical clustering, particularly when we know about the ascertainment bias, can tell us anything definitive or dispositive. Yes, it can hint towards the possibility that the market still needs to be considered as a possible source of the origin of the outbreak. And I think um, George Gao uh, may be wrong. It may indeed have started in the market. Alina Chan and I both say that's a possibility. What we object to is people like Michael Warraby saying, uh, we're so sure it started in the market that we can rule out the lab uh, and we can call it dispositive, the word he used, which means settled once and for all, um, uh, and we can call it case closed, and we no longer need to ask tough questions of the laboratory. We want to ask tough questions of the market and the lab. We want to find out how it started. We think it's vital for the future of humanity that we do find out how this started. Um, I, there's one other um, objection that I, um, kind of salient objection that I uh, read in uh, Warabi's book and also uh, in the work of someone called um, Jesse Bloom. And um, I don't think I really understood this objection. So um, I wonder if you could uh, steelman it for me and explain um why you think it is is uh, uh, um, not a, a strong objection, and that has to do with the um, the two lineages of the original virus. So there have been many variants, of course, that have developed, but the original virus in human, the original human transmissions, the first cases in November and December two thousand and nineteen, if I've understood correctly, uh, came into two lineages, two mutations, lineage A and lineage B. Um, it, it seems that that suggests um, to Warabi and Bloom that the virus must, these must have been two separate zoonotic um, jumps that both took place within the market. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I haven't really understood the logic of this argument. Um, and the team argues that the almost simultaneous emergence of two lineages challenges the lab origin thesis. Ah, yeah, sorry, as it would require two different viruses leaking at roughly the same time. And apparently it's, it's not unlikely that two different mutations could occur at the same time because we, we would be starting with an origin virus that was uh, mutating into two very, very closely related strains. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, um, th this is, again, we're dealing with a huge uncertainty here. We don't know for sure. But uh, it's true that there are two lineages of the virus in the early cases. Uh, now, you've said November and December. We all think, everybody thinks, that there were cases in November, but but were, none of them have been... Um, uh, characterized sufficiently clearly um, that uh, uh, we know about any November cases. So what we're talking about is December cases here. In December, or ca cases that were diagnosed in December, I assume. So some of them may have begun in November. 
and people were still diagnosable yes, in December. Is no, that, well, or um, a misunderstanding. The, the, the only cases where we know which virus, which version of the virus they had, are from December. We haven't been okay. given any data of anybody who was infected as early as November, as far as we can make out. But that's important because if there are two lineages in December. Um, one of which turns up in the market and the other one doesn't. Lineage B is found in the Huanan seafood market. Lineage A is not. Until a few weeks ago when George Gao of the CDC said, actually, one of the environmental samples we found in the market was lineage A, just one. Um, and Michael Warby got latched onto that and said, ah, so lineage A was in the market, um, to which uh, the answer is, well, yes, but it looks like a human being who visited the market with Lineage A. We knew Lineage A was around. We just didn't know, um, you know, why couldn't it have been one human being who went to the market and brought Lineage A there? And he's saying, um, no, no. Could I, uh, may I ask where the, could you remind me where the Lineage A sample was found in the market? Uh, I can't remember. I'll have to look mm. that up for you. Um, I, I, I don't. Because I wonder if it was a surface as opposed to a backroom cage or something that might make a difference. Uh, I, yeah, we can look that up, but I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't one of the backroom cages. One, but anyway. So you've got lineage A and lineage B. Um, uh, it, it, Michael Warby thinks they both jumped independently from animals in the market. Um, that's not tremendously plausible, but it's possible. Uh, and he's saying the alternative is that they both jumped independently in the in the lab, which is not very plausible. I agree, that's not very plausible either, but I don't see that it's any more or less plausible than, than both jumping independently in the market. What I think is more plausible than both of those, and I'm pretty sure, I, I can't remember what Jesse Bloomer said about this, but I'm pretty sure he's on the same page here is that lineage A and lineage B have a common ancestor back in November, which is why that little thing about November, December was important, um, in a human being. Um, that There were people that in November who got infected with an ancestral version um, of, of this virus, and some of and the virus then mutated a little bit from A to B or from B to A or from a common ancestor to, to the two. The mutation differences between A and B are really quite small. I mean, I think it's about three base pairs, but I might be wrong. I might, I'd have to look that up. So it's not at all impossible that A and B have a common ancestor that was found in human beings and that is the original index case, zero, patient zero infection. That seems to me to be a, a possibility that makes, the, makes it unnecessary for Michael Warraby to posit two separate outbreaks in um, the Huanan seafood market and makes it unnecessary for anyone to posit two separate leaks in a laboratory. Until we can rule out that, that these two have a common ancestor in November, uh, then I don't think that argument about lineage A and B is terribly interesting myself. Yeah, that's that was my impression as well. Um, I think Bloom says that he, uh, he thinks that lineage B actually, despite despite the um, misnaming, that lineage B probably emerged first. Yes, um, uh, I, I yeah, I think that's easily possible. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't really understand that part of Warabi's argument, and um, what you're saying has not helped it make sense to me. So I'm I'm just going to kind of discard that objection at the moment, at least. I want to just just returning to the gain of function research. So we've been talking a great deal about the dangers, um, and there are, of course, as with many areas of research, there are um, huge potential potential benefits as well. Um, and I gather that some of the gain of function research is aimed at creating a, a vaccine which would be globally effective against coronaviruses. Correct, yeah. Um, the ambitions of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and their US partners, the EcoHealth Alliance, are very explicitly laid out um, in the years before the pandemic. They say the reason we're doing this research is to identify and therefore prevent the next pandemic. We hope to literally find all the viruses with pandemic potential in uh, horseshoe bats and um, get ready to pick them up early and therefore prevent a pandemic breaking out. It, you know, it's a noble aim. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's all good. There were strong critics within virology saying, we don't think you're ever going to be able to achieve that. We don't think your experiments are ever going to tell us enough. And we also think that um, uh, doing experiments in the lab to find that out is going to be too time-consuming, etc. You're going to be better off just making sure you're on the lookout for people getting sick in different parts of the world uh, as a way of picking up pandemics rather than predicting them in advance. But they also began to talk about vaccines. They talked about, uh, and the, uh, Ralph Barrick at North Carolina talks about this, uh, Peter Daszak of the Eco Health Alliance, um, and uh, Lin Fa Wang and, and uh, 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 Xi Jing Li at uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, start to talk about the possibility of developing a vaccine that will work against any coronavirus and that we can all take and therefore there never will be another SARS outbreak because we're all immune. That's, um, you know, an ambition that starts to progress. And actually, Ralph Barrick does a series of experiments to um, uh, develop a, a, a live attenuated version of a coronavirus vaccine that, that would not possibly revert to uh, lethality, etc. And they're an interesting set of experiments. They turned out not to be much use when the pandemic came along, by the way, but they were, you know, they were going in the right direction. Um, so uh, was it necessary for the development of a pan-coronavirus vaccine to do experiments in which you create chimeric spike proteins with increased infectiousness and test them in um, human cells and humanized mice? No, it doesn't contribute towards the vaccine project. It contributes um, towards understanding which viruses are more dangerous, but it wasn't part of the pan-coronavirus plan. And, you know, I generally share with Professor Richard E. Bright of um, um, uh, Rutgers University uh, the view that had I known, which I didn't, that people were deliberately developing viruses with enhanced infectivity in labs, I would not have approved of that. 
And I speak as someone who is a huge fan of biotechnology, of genetically modified crops, of all those kind of things. I think we should be doing amazing things with biotechnology, and I think we are doing amazing things. But I just don't see that making already dangerous viruses more dangerous um, is something that science should be defending. I think I, I think science is making a great mistake in saying all gain of functions fine. There's nothing to worry about here. We don't need more regulation. We don't need a, a voluntary a moratorium on certain kinds of things. Um, we uh, uh, that way they taint the whole of science, including brilliant biotechnology, such as led to the messenger RNA vaccines, with the risk that people will think, well, hang on, weren't you doing something dangerous in that lab over there? So why should I trust you on this lab over here? Mm-hmm. I I do also want to add a remark of my own, and regular listeners to the podcast have heard me allude to this a few times, um, and you can find more details in an interview I did with uh, Brian David Earp, and I also wrote a deep dive uh, article on this, which is um, – about the WHO's um, uh, project to circumcise adult men in Africa to quote-unquote protect them from HIV. Um, And one of the things that Brian discovered looking into that, and Brian is a left-winger, he is very, he is in fact very woke, quote-unquote, he's a big kind of social justice enthusiast. Um, So he is He's not your usual suspect of contrarian thinking. He's not a contrarian thinker. Um, but his discovery was, first of all, there's no evidence that being circumcised protects you against HIV. A lot of money has been put in and continues to be put into this project. And the group of scientists, um, who, the group who were, group of medics who were heading this project were led by a guy who um, has patented the circumcision clamp that they're using to do the circumcisions. Um, Ouch. Wow. That's yeah, it's, a, it's an incredibly awful story. Um, this is a couple of years ago, so I don't know the current state of play on this. Um, but I can say that one thing I discovered is that there's this kind of perception of the WHO as this one big kind of oracular organization. Um, and in fact, it's lots of separate groups of lots of separate groups of scientists and doctors um, doing separate projects. Um, and so it's not a question of can the WHO be trusted or not. It's um, what what specific project and what specific information are we looking at in each case? Um, so that's one of the one of the things that I have discovered, and that made me kind of dismiss the argument that the WHO says this must be correct as a legitimate one. Yeah, I just wanted was. to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, well, I've uh, you know the WHO um, uh, got Ebola wrong. Um, it admitted that it, it actually went back and had a rather good drains up inquiry as to why it was so slow to admit that there was a real problem with Ebola in 2014. Um, uh, and the answer was because it's it didn't want to offend the its local uh, contacts in those countries. Um, it got vaping wrong. Um, it's desperately trying to get everyone to ban vaping all around the world. Actually, I think vaping is a very good way of getting people to stop smoking. It's in, hugely safer. 
and I think they're, 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 they're being very, very dogmatic about this. Um, and it got this wrong. It investigated in a very slow, lethargic, and frankly, inadequate manner the origin of the virus and thereby prevented other countries from mounting their own investigations into the origin of the virus because you know, I was asking the British government, what are we doing to look into the cause of this? And I was told, um, we're leaving it to the WHO. So it got in the way of that. And they had a their major international COVID meeting a few weeks ago, which went on for about five days. Um, and I looked through the program and the titles of every talk and every session the word origin does not appear um, there at all. I think that's extraordinary. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, um, uh, there are 49 sessions. Not one of them was about where this virus came from. The World Health Organization has been telling us for years that we need to understand the, uh, the, the way in which viruses jump from animals into, into humans. Here's a virus that's jumped from a bat into a human. Why are they so reluctant to find out how and why it happened? Is it because secretly they worry that it did happen through the lab and they don't want to find that out? Is it because they're under pressure from China not to talk about that topic? The Chinese government, I should say, not from China itself. Or, um, or they just don't have sufficient information because the Chinese government did not give them that information. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've had friends say to me, look, stop criticizing the intelligence agencies uh, for not providing more useful information on the origin of COVID-19 or the media or something. They're just not giving a running commentary. Why should they give a running commentary? And I say, after two years, a little commentary would be nice, whether it runs or not. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do also want to just address a couple of criticisms I heard um of one criticism that I heard of your book, actually, which is that you you don't um, you underestimate the dangers of zoonotic transmission, and that's that's not true at all. There's a lot of stuff in the book about zoonotic transmission, about the treatment of animals of wild animals, about the specifics of bat species and why it is they're more susceptible to these viruses. And I did definitely exit the book with a feeling of, that, um, of kind of horror at what's a lot of what's happening in uh, treatment of wildlife and wildlife trading in China, and also in traditional Chinese medicine ingredients. I agree. Um, yeah. That that was a that was a a big theme in the book. The one theme that that is missing from the book, I suspect, uh, uh, along these lines, is the deforestation argument. Uh, you know, it's been very clearly made by a number of virologists and others and ecologists that um, the reason we're seeing pandemics uh, at all is because we are deforesting the planet and people are coming into contact with bats more. Well, I, you know, I've looked into this subsequently. We did. We decided not to go into that in the book. It wasn't particularly relevant to to what we were talking about, but. Um, China is reforesting rather than deforesting, particularly in the south. That's because people are leaving the countryside to move to cities. A lot of farmland is reverting to forest. Um, uh, 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 there is actually uh, deliberate policy of reforestation too. So the idea that there's less habit, less wild habitat for bats just doesn't add up. It makes no sense at all. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and therefore I think that's, uh, a red herring. When I did write an article about this, I was contacted by a um, an archaeologist who said, "Look, there's a reason 
we called them cavemen. Our ancestors lived in caves a lot of the time. You know, they, they used caves massively. Look at all the cave paintings and things like that. They came into contact with bats a lot 40,000 and 10,000 years ago. Um, the idea that it's something new that we now, you know, for the first time we now go into caves and encounter bats is just not, not right. People have been going deep underground for lots of reasons for tens of thousands of years. And that's another point that I think was, was worth making. So I, I do, I do personally, it's not in the book, but I do have uh, an answer to people who say, oh, it's ecological. Oh, it's because we're, we're coming into contact with wildlife more. I don't think we are. I think we're becoming a more urban species. We're leaving wildlife alone on the whole, with the exception of this smuggling trade for traditional Chinese medicine and um, the wildlife farming trade, which, I, which we write about in the book. So that's where I think the focus on that should be. Mm. I um, So you published this book in November. Have there been developments since then um, or updates to your knowledge that have that you would have liked to have included but weren't able to? Yes, and we are, of course, going to include them in the paperback. I mean, the, 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 the main ones are the um, uh, discovery of a virus in Laos that's closely related, and uh, it's slightly more closely related overall than the uh, previous most closely related one, which was from Yunnan. And we point out that we know that Wuhan Institute of Virology was receiving viruses from bats in Laos. So that doesn't necessarily change uh, any conclusions, but it's still, it's important. Um, uh, the other one was the revelation of the details of the emails exchanged by senior virologists in early February 2020, um, including Anthony Fauci and Jeremy Farah, uh, and Francis Collins and people like that. That was a very important piece of journalistic work by um, various people to discover what they were thinking. And it does show that at a time when the senior virology community was reassuring the public that there was no possibility of a laboratory leak being behind this, in private they thought differently. In private they thought it was a strong possibility, but they didn't want to tell the public that. That seems to be an important fact to be out there in the public domain. And the third element that we discuss is the uh, the three preprints that appeared just a few weeks ago, two from Michael Warraby and his colleagues um, making the case that it almost certainly did start in the um, market, and one from George Gao reiterating and giving more details of why he thinks it probably didn't start in the market. And when you add up the data for the reasons you and I have just talked about, uh, we think neither of these None of these three preprints changes the uh, conclusion we've come to, which is that it could have come in, it could have started in the market, it could have started in the lab. We think the evidence favours the latter at the moment, but we're not at all sure, and we need a lot more evidence before we can say anything for sure. Thank you, uh, Matt. Is there anything that you hope that I would ask, or that you wanted to make sure you said that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, and I think that's quite a good place to end. Um, uh, you've you've been very thorough. It's been fascinating for me to to have the these well researched objections put to me. Um, my voice is beginning to give out. Uh, after oh yes, my, I COVID of last week. So I'm, I'm I'm a little delighted that we may have reached the point where we can close the microphone. Marvelous. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Thank you everyone for listening. 
and have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.